Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-hosts, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher, and LARB's gender and sexuality editor, Eric Newman. Hi, you guys. Hi, Kate. Hi, Kate. This week, we're listening back to an interview that Eric did with Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Cullors. Yeah, we thought in light of recent news, in light of recent circumstances, in light of the protests in LA and around the nation and also around the world, that this seems like a particularly important interview to listen back to. Eric, tell us what the circumstances were for this event. Yeah, so I was interviewing Patrice as the kind of closing event for the Lambda Lit Fest in 2018. And what we were talking about was basically Patrice had come out with a book, When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir. And so in the interview, we kind of talk about her background and experience and how she kind of came to activist circles, how she thinks about queerness and activism, and also kind of how she infuses religious or spiritual practice in her activism. Obviously, it's like, Patrice's message and the message of those who do the work that Patrice and others do is always present. And obviously, as we're talking, it's it's just particularly relevant today as we kind of see not only the repeated outrages of police violence against Black people in the United States, but also as we kind of see the militarization of the police against peaceful protests, right, calling out that violence. So I think that it's always a good time to listen to Patrice. She always has much to teach us and much to challenge us with. Today, there's nobody that I could think of that I would want to hear more from. Well, let's listen to the interview. Let's do it. So without further ado, it is my great honor to introduce you to Patrice Cullors. Patrice is a performance artist, organizer, freedom fighter, public speaker, Fulbright scholar, 2015 NAACP history maker, and 2017 Sydney Peace Prize recipient from our very own Los Angeles. I obviously had to cut a lot of that for time. She's many, many, many other things. You probably know her, however, as the co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, which Patrice, in tandem with Alicia Garza and Opal Tometi, started in the wake of Trayvon Martin's murder. Patrice has dedicated her activism and much of her life to fighting anti-black police violence in the streets and in the prison system. In addition to her work with Black Lives Matter, she is the executive director of the Coalition to End Sheriff Violence in LA Jails, which seeks to curb abuses perpetrated by officers against inmates. She is also the co-founder of the prison activism organization Dignity and Power Now. She joins us today at Fiesta Hall in Plummer Park for the finale event of the Lambda Lit Fest to talk about queerness, activism, and her book, When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir, which was published earlier this year by St. Martin's Press. It is my pleasure and privilege to speak with you today. Welcome to the show, Patrice. Thanks for having me. Hey, everybody. Okay, so to open things up a little bit, the book moves in a number of different directions as it chronicles your personal life, growing up in Pacoima, coming into your queer identity, which is a really interesting journey to follow throughout the book, attending UCLA and coming up in activist circles alongside your political life as an organizer and as co-founder of Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how queerness intersects with your political activism, either as an influence or as a kind of organizational approach? Yes, I can. 
I think what's important for me, I came out at a young age, 14, mm-hmm. 15 years old, and in my coming out was really having a larger conversation around the intersections of queerness, blackness, and my womanness. Right. And in that conversation, understood that at every moment that I was evolving and learning more about myself, it was important to be authentic and honest about who I was. And that also meant in movement spaces, especially as I was growing up in movement spaces, it wasn't very popular to lead with your queerness. Right. And it was important for me when the first time I joined an organization when I was 17 years old, I was very unapologetic in my queerness. I was much like I am now, but an 18-year-old, so imagine. Um, <laughs> you know. And in that, I think it challenged many of the people in the organization, mostly older folks, to show up for me, but also thinking about queerness much more broadly. Our organization that I was with called the Bus Riders Union, we were actually ended up passing a motion at the organization level to support the LGBT community, and it really had to do with me sort of coming in and saying, this isn't a necessary conversation. It's not just an identity. It has economic impacts, queerness does, and the relationship to the state. And so... Can you explain that a little bit more? Because I'm interested to hear how you made those inroads Mm -hmm. and kind of changed minds in the activist space. Yeah. Part of it was having the courageous conversations with a leadership in the organization that we couldn't just talk about race. And actually, we needed to talk about race. We needed to talk about gender. We needed to talk about sexuality. And not just as the sort of like, oh, that's the thing that you do in the bedroom, but rather having a political conversation. This is obviously before the passing of gay marriage. This is before the sodomy laws were changed. Right. (laughs) Remember that? Not that long ago. Exactly. And so we had to have a conversation about the material impacts of being queer and what it means for a young, poor, queer woman to, you know, at that point I was houseless. I was living in cars and Mm -hmm. living in other people's homes. I had been pushed out of my own house for being queer. And I, every other queer person who was living in the streets with me were mostly of color. And so the intersections of what that means and having to have those courageous conversations inside of the organization. And thankfully the leadership was receptive and they were ready to listen. And, you know, they had about a dozen queer young folks being like, we want to be in this organization, but we'll only stay here if you're willing to not just accept or tolerate our identities, but integrate this larger conversation about queerness. Yeah, one of the things that also comes up a number of times in the book, and this speaks to kind of recognizing like where pain, trauma, and need are present, is that you talk many times about how black trans folks, Mm -hmm. and specifically black trans women, Mm -hmm. are the most susceptible to violence, right? And this is a thing that we've seen greater coverage of in terms of media over the past, like, maybe two years, like, not even maybe that long. Mm -hmm. But how do you think we can center the needs of the trans community more, both within our politics and our communities? Well, I think part of it is 
we always have to identify the issue, identify what is not being talked about, and then we have to align what we're identifying with practice. Mm. And so when Black Lives Matter started, one of the first things we did was wrote a letter, the Her Story of Black Lives Matter. Alicia wrote that letter and Opal, myself, and Darnell Moore edited the letter. And one of the things we said in that letter is we are talking about all black lives. We're not just talking about some black lives. We're not just talking about the black yeah. lives that are sort of like we're the perfect human and could be a poster child for this movement. We're talking about the messy black lives. We're talking about black people who are immigrants, black trans folks. We're talking about black people who are undocumented, black people who are currently sitting in jails and prisons. And we lifted up black trans women specifically because at that point we wanted to challenge homophobia and transphobia in the black community mm. and in our larger movement. But we also wanted to talk about how if black trans women get free, we all get free. And that when we center yeah. the people at the margins and we actually lift up their issues and lift up the ways that we can support them, we actually create an environment where we can support way more people versus the other way around, right? Centering people with more privilege, centering, you know, cis heterosexual black men, mm -hmm. which was really sort of how the Obama administration led, right? We're gonna center men and boys of color. Right. Um, and there was an uproar, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw really, you know, took to the internet and to the streets and to academia to say, hey, there are hosts of black women and girls that are um, completely disenfranchised. We can't take a parcel of our community and focus on them. We actually have to look at everybody. Yeah, there's another aspect to your book that we were talking about a little bit before we got started that struck me by surprise. One of the reasons that I would suggest, not only because Patrice's story is incredible and very compelling, but because I'm constantly learning things that like, I thought I knew a lot about you, and then I'm learning things that I didn't know at all. <laughs> First of all, that Patrice is also a fellow Bruin. <laughs> She's like former UCLA. <laughs> but that she has this very rich and interesting religious background. So when you grew up in the memoir, you recount your experiences as a young person growing up around Jehovah's Witnesses, mm -hmm. and then getting your degree in religion and philosophy at UCLA, mm -hmm. and then transitioning to the Ifa religion mm -hmm. when you were older, which I believe you also still practice. Yes, I do. So one thing that I'm interested in, well, it's twofold. One is, how does religion function within your kind of political practice or your everyday life? And then, is there a space for the fusion of more traditionalist religion and queerness, right? Because that's usually something that we understand as having like being at loggerheads. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I grew up Jehovah's Witness. Any ex-Jehovah's Witness in the house? I'm actually surprised because <laughs> I always find one at a queer event. <laughs> and when we huddle and commiserate. So yeah, I grew up very religious. I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses are incredibly religious. And, you know, I remember probably being 12 or 13 years old and asking questions because that was the kind of child I was. And at some point in the questioning, one of the elders in the Kingdom Hall said to me, so I'm going to stop you because all that questioning shows me that you have the devil in you. And then I was like 12 and I was like, yeah, this isn't for me. This ain't the religion for me. I was like, if I can't ask questions, like if my spirit is asking questions and you can't, the only response you have is this is the devil, then this definitely isn't the place for me. And so I, but I went but on Also a, true probably of any organization that you join. Religion, if you can't ask so, questions, you should, not, you should not be a member of good, that organization. Good punto. So I 
left in my head because I was still 12 and living in my mother's house. But I disconnected, mm-hmm. you know. Before that, I was very, like, I brought my Bible to school. You know, children are children. So I brought my watchtower to school, and I was preaching to my friends. And, and then I just stopped. I stopped, and I started to go on my own sort of childhood, you know, journey around spirituality. And for me, I really really need spirituality. I knew that. I loved, what I loved about the Kingdom Hall is that it was deeply rooted in community. Mm. And there was a lot of sort of like community sharing and building. And so I knew I wanted that. I just didn't want all the other stuff. <laughs> and as I developed into a teen and an adult, I really was connected to my ancestors. And so I built my first altar. I remember like underneath my bed so my mom didn't see it. And it became sort of this place for me And I think now in this movement, especially in this current moment, especially after today, it's really important for me to have a connection to spirit individually to help me understand sort of this bigger, larger project called the United States. And I think I would not, I don't think I'd have much sanity if I didn't believe in something bigger than us. I mean, that's not knocking folks that don't, but it's what has kept me centered, I think, in these last five years in particular. To talk a little bit about Black Lives Matter, I'm interested in how you see the work of that as a contemporary movement in conversation with, say, like earlier activist movements and groups such as the Black Panthers, which you mentioned, and various components of the civil rights movement more generally. So what do you think you learned from those movements and what did you need to change in order to address the crises that we face right now? Absolutely. Well, You know, I was always told by my father that I was in the wrong generation. He spotted my activism like when I was a teeny (laughs) tiny person. And he would always say to me, like, there was a time when people did this thing protesting and you just wrong time for you, Patrice. So (laughs) I'm so grateful for Black Lives Matter. But I think for me, you know, part of the obsession with the 60s and 70s was I was witnessing black people during a time, you know, romanticizing it for sure, but I was like, look, these folks are fighting back. Mm. And I grew up in a very poor neighborhood. I grew up over-policed. You know, many of my community members were incarcerated by the time I was 13 or 14. And it was just very depressing. And so to witness and look back at a group of people who were challenging the system and making wins, I think became really important. And then I got older and learned, well, the Panthers were doing more than just holding guns, right? They had the first health clinics. The breakfast program. The breakfast program. They were teaching school to Mm -hmm. black children. They were creating programs, programs, exactly. And they had a whole thing called survival until revolution, which meant we're going to take care of ourselves until we topple over the state. And I thought the taking care of ourselves part was just so brilliant. And Mm. it was a part that we never talked about as a country. And so fast forward to Black Lives Matter, as we started developing BLM, I think it became really important for me to take some of those lessons from the Panthers, their courage, their clarity. But I think the other parts that we sort of let go of was the patriarchy. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, as most people know, Black Lives Matter started by three black women. And really, I would say 90% of the leadership of Black Lives Matter is black women. That was also the case in the 60s and 70s, except folks who were still identifying with black cis men as like the lead, as needing mm-hmm. to be the face, as needing to be the most visible. And I think we have, we have successfully transformed that in this moment. And I think that's incredibly powerful. It's great. Yeah. 
Yeah, because it also occurs to me, one of the things that I, I often find interesting is in that time, I find it inspiring in the same ways that you do, but also troubling in some ways for not only the misogyny or maybe if not extreme misogyny, the mm-hmm. kind of support of the patriarchy mm-hmm. that happened in those movements, and also the suppression of queer voices that were central Absolutely. to those movements, Absolutely. right? So we were just talking with someone earlier Bayard for the show Rustin. about Bayard Rustin, mm-hmm. right? I also, speaking of those kind of voices that came out of that time, you've spoken about queer of color writers and activists like Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde as inspirations for the kind of work that you do. Can you talk a little bit about what those women and their writing have meant to you? Oh yeah, everything. I used to keep Sister Outsider like literally under my (laughs) arm. Like it was my Bible book. I traded the watchtower for Sister Outsider. (laughs) Thank God. And I got to read these women, specifically Audrey Bell Hooks too, but Bell Hooks, I remember going to go see her and her like changing my viewpoint on love and, and how I love myself and others. And then Audrey Lord was clearly way beyond her time. And she yes. was able to articulate a sort of blackness and queerness and womanness that existed for me, that I was, and provided a lexicon for my life. And yeah, so grateful for her. I was reading just a little bit ago, Zammy, for what feels like the fifth time. And there's like something about how she pulls it. Yeah. Everyone should buy Zammy if you've never read it. It's like not only beautiful to read, but the clarity of her political vision is so powerful in that book. Absolutely. I wish that she was still here today. That's definitely one of those like ancestors that I wish were still around. So then to talk about your own life as an activist, kind of where did you learn your craft? You get into this a lot in the book, but can you just kind of talk to the audience about how you honed yourself as an organizer and activist? Yeah, I mean, I didn't do it by myself at all. And I do not recommend anybody to try to be an activist on your own. It's (laughs) super lonely that way. But I joined an organization and thankfully joined the organization that I would literally be with for 11 years. And I joined it at 17 and I was invested in, I was deeply invested in by the org and the people in it. And part of that looked like taking time to talk to me about what was happening in my own personal life, taking time to Mm. talk to me about the politics that were happening around me. I obviously, you know, my last year of high school was when we had the second Bush administration and that election changed my life. I was in the streets every single weekend. I was really dedicated myself to challenging U.S. imperialism, you know, through that administration and deepened my commitment to building out a world where, you know, this is before the term Black Lives Matter, but where Black Lives Matter. And that was also a place where I was able to get clarity on my deep alignment with international issues. The organization was not solely focused on civil rights, but it was looking at human rights around the country. And so I got to travel in that organization. I got to meet delegates from across the world and be in some of the most invigorating conversations about how other countries are dealing with U.S. imperialism. So I'm very lucky. I'm very blessed that that was the first org that I joined. And then from there started 
Dignity Empower Now, which is my local organization mm-hmm. that I'm now on the board of, and the following year would start Black Lives Matter. So what would you tell somebody that like wants to get involved? Like, What's a good place to, obviously, and I second that, that nobody should ever do activism <laughs> alone. The best part of activism is that you get to see other people Absolutely. and you form family and community. So what would you tell somebody that wants to get involved? Like, Where should they get started? I mean, I think everybody should join something. It doesn't have to be the thing that everybody else is joining, but join something that you feel most politically aligned with, something that you feel like is changing and moving this country in the direction that you believe it should be moved in. Mm -hmm. And that could mean donating. It could mean volunteering once a week. It could mean, you know, joining the organization as a staff person. It can mean so many different things. We don't have to all be paid organizers. I actually don't think that's a good idea at all. I think some of us should continue to do the work that we do in life and then join the org that feels in most alignment with our politics. Okay. Now, one thing that we haven't talked about, which is a big part of Black Lives Matter, is social media. Mm-hmm. So that's at least one major difference. Because before, like in 60s and 70s, right, it's pamphlets, it's public protest, word of mouth, like that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So how do you think social media and technology kind of allowed you, because you guys went viral everywhere. 30 million tweets. The hashtag has done 30 million. It's incredible. Yeah, it's wild. Um, So can you talk to us about the benefits of social media for organizing and activism? And then if there are any, like what are some of the challenges challenges that people face? So I'll start with the challenges. I think social media becomes a destination that people think everything will happen at that destination, and it's just not true. Social media is a tool amongst many tools that we have. And I also think we've learned some bad habits from social media. Okay. It means that you know we get to block and cancel people on social media, when in real life you actually have to be a part of humanity. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to have we need to do a better job at being able to be in courageous conversations with one another about what's happening in the world. And I'm not saying that you need to fight with a troll. That's very different, right? There's a difference between like <laughs> and fighting also counterproductive. a bot. Exactly. Yeah. I don't fight trolls and bots. Like I'm like, yeah, that's boring. Yes, block and cancel the trolls and bots. But I'm talking about real life people, right? Possibly family members, possibly yeah. people in your community. So we end up creating this little like very curated world that's not real in real life. And so when we get in a situation where we have to actually have a courageous conversation or challenge someone, we don't know how to do it because we've canceled everybody out of our lives on right. social media. Yeah. So I just like, that is like very generational to me. And it's a thing I say at every talk that I give because it's, you know, it's going to take a group of people to reshift how we relate to each other and to social media. The good news, though, is that social media allows for us to have the kinds of conversations within seconds that we couldn't have, you know, 15, 20 years ago. We weren't even really using social media when Trayvon Martin happened, right? It was the very beginning. Black Lives Matter started at the acquittal of Trayvon Martin. And while that was the first time the hashtag went viral, it's really not until Mike Brown and the non-indictment of Darren Wilson, you know, the officer that killed him, where the hashtag takes over the internet. And really, where we see the virility of hashtag activism and what kind of life it can take on. I think what's most exciting to me, though, is when people are able to take their hashtags and then construct what it looks like on the ground. 
and construct mm. a movement on the ground because the movement didn't happen on social media. The movement happened in real life in the on streets. the ground in yeah. the streets. And social media just amplified it. And then to finish up our conversation about the book, and then we're going to talk about current events, which I can't wait to talk to you about. <laughs> Was it difficult writing this memoir? Because it's very personal. And you talk about a lot of things in a kind of, I mean, I know it's written and it's edited, but it's very unguarded, right? You don't kind of spare anyone and you talk about very complex relationships with family members, with lovers, with yourself. So what was that like? It was hard. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I know you live your life in public, but it's like there's- It's a different type of public. I was very nervous before we published. I started to like make all these edits and I'd be like, Asha, I think I should take that part out where I said all those things about my mom and myself. And I think by the third time I did that, she was like, stop. You're just like- (laughs) No more edits. You're either gonna put it out or you're not. And so yeah, I was also clarifying. I uncovered a lot of stuff that I forgot about. I talk about in the book, the first time I was arrested when I was 13 years old in junior high. And I was in school, I was in class, and a police officer came into class and you know, whispered in the teacher's ear and they hauled me off in handcuffs. And I remember telling that story to Asha and she kind of stopped me and she said, I'm sorry, what? Because I said it super like, oh yeah, and then I got arrested and I was in the classroom and she was like, that is unacceptable. Yeah. And it was the first time in my life where anybody had told me that it was not okay, that the experiences that I had were not just traumatic, but unacceptable. And they shouldn't have happened to me or anybody in my community. And so to be an adult and be able to reflect on a very painful childhood that was, you know, that pain was really led by the state gave me like a new perspective. And I was like, oh, of course, I would be a part of starting Black Lives Matter because of the rage and the how much I had seen. And I knew that it wasn't just about me. It was everything I had, my community had seen as well. And especially, I mean, you talk, you speak very eloquently about your brother. And I can only imagine how difficult that was, who is very much a victim of state violence. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. You've been hearing our conversation with Patrice Cullors, author of When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir, recorded at the 2018 Lambda Literary Festival in Los Angeles. We now return to that conversation. So transitioning to current events, let's start with Good news first. Yes. So yesterday, a jury found Officer Jason Van Dyke guilty of second-degree murder in the shooting of Laquan McDonald, a black teen, a black teen whom that officer shot 16 times. Yep. This is a rare victory, as you know, um, in a country that seems to routinely thwart justice in cases where black people, especially unarmed black men, are killed by police officers. So I have a couple of questions for you about this. One, do you think that this case represents long-needed change and justice, or is it kind of a blip? No, it's, 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 it's more complicated than even that question. I think okay. what we're seeing... After the video of Laquan's murder was put out, folks went to the streets. Black Lives Matter went to the streets. BYP 100 went to the streets. Lots of folks across Chicago. Chicago is a very organized city. People stood up. And what you're seeing is the the victory of people coming together to challenge state violence in their neighborhood. 
and in the same breath, this Laquan should not have been murdered in the first place. Yes. And so for us, at the end of the day, justice isn't locking up a bunch of cops. Mm. Uh, justice is divestment from law enforcement altogether and a reinvestment into our communities, black communities in particular. And this becomes important because what we don't want to do is get caught up in the cycle of saying, great, we did our job, we got a cop locked up, because that is not the end goal. While I am so grateful that finally a cop gets murder for killing a child, mm-hmm. I am still very, very clear that we have a long ways to go. Right. And do you think, because um, one of the parts of this case that I think made it turn out the way that it did is that we had video. We had, and we had a video that went viral mm-hmm. everywhere, mm-hmm. right? Um, and this was, I think it was referenced in the jury's decision that it's yeah. like, we saw the video, we had the cop's account, and we believe the video. Yeah. Um, do you think that camera phones and the kind of ability to spread these images and videos widely and quickly has helped the activist movement in terms of both addressing and acknowledging these realities? Absolutely, absolutely. I think the use of the the camera phone has been incredibly important, but also how much we've empowered ourselves and the community to cop watch. I think cop watching has become, it's not, cop watching used to be, okay, we're all gonna go outside and we're gonna literally watch cops, which is what people still do, but, Cop watching has become second nature. So how many times have you been on the street now and you see a law law enforcement harassing someone and you automatically take out your phone? I mean, it's just become a part of what we do. It's it's become a part of sort of American culture. And I think that's incredibly important. So that's kind of like activating the citizen. Absolutely. To be like, to provide the kind, because I know you you work a lot on oversight, that it's Mm -hmm. like, that's what we need, not just this class of people that can do whatever they want and suffer no consequences. And we have to also, I think what we've seen is a cultural shift from, oh, that cop's doing whatever he's doing, I'm gonna walk away, to a no, I'm not gonna, I'm not on my watch will I let this happen without me film it. And I think that is so, so important. Another victory that we've had in the past couple of weeks um, was the passage into law of two bills in California, SB 1421 and AB 748, that will give the public access to internal investigations and video footage of shootings and other serious incidents involving police officers. So I know, Patrice, this is an issue that you've been working on for a long time. So I'm wondering how you're processing the passage of these new laws Uh, providing more public transparency and oversight of police officers. It's huge. I mean, if people don't know, California has had the most secretive laws for law enforcement, meaning not even the DA can open up law enforcement files without having to go to court around it. And a judge can overturn it if the judge thinks that it is against what they call a pitches motion. So we are living in a and a state that has spent, the, the police lobby has spent a lot of time ensuring that its cops are protected. And what this allows for is actually, a, it's a flip and it allows for the public to get more information, especially on law enforcement that has a history of either repeated killings, repeated abuse, repeated sexual harassment. What we ended up learning is there is many law enforcement officers who are getting fired from their jobs and then they would just go to the next department because that department couldn't open up their files from the last job. Right. And so you would have literally repeated offenders 
going from hopping from law enforcement agency to law enforcement agency, harassing the community around them. I'm wondering, though, one of the things that comes up in some of these cases is, like, do you think that the body cams that are increasingly being used in police departments, like, do you think that is helpful or is that... Because I'm, I'm also, I guess, wondering a larger question about allocation of resources, which is something that you talk a lot about in the book, that it's like, you know what, maybe we don't need to be giving, like, all these, like, gadgets and bells and whistles and military-grade equipment to police departments because the amount of money that gets spent on that Absolutely. could very well help actual communities, real people. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think this issue around body cameras became, at, you know, at the height of Black Lives Matter, became sort of like, this is the fix-it ticket. If we just give them cameras, then, and we, and we get to see what really happened, it'll change things, but we've seen over and over again. A number of things happen when you put the cameras in the hands of the police. They turn them off. Right, or oops, it malfunctioned. Exactly. Yeah. Or they don't implement them. Right? There's lots of times where they have the cameras, but they don't implement them. And then third, yeah, this piece around spending millions and millions of dollars on equipping law enforcement with cameras, and yet those millions of dollars can actually go into reinvesting communities. So we have to be asking a different question, and we get this a lot in BLM, right? Well, what about training them? If they have better training, and my argument is always, this is how they're trained. Yeah. This is their training. And so it's, we have to ask a different question, which is why are we spending millions of dollars on law enforcement in the first place? Yeah. Where else could we be spending our money? And how did we get here? This has not always been the case. This is really a 40-year project of criminalizing an entire community. Mm -hmm. Thank you. All right, so now as we wrap up, we'll transition to the real bad news. Yeah, yeah. Today, as many of us watched or read Sick to Our Stomachs, the GOP-led Senate confirmed the appointment of Brett Kavanaugh as a Supreme Court justice. Personally, the handling of credible sexual assault allegations against Kavanaugh, as well as his unbecoming, vitriolic, and partisan performance in committee hearings are a grave disappointment given the political stakes of our moment. How are you processing this news, and what can we do about things like this? Well, I first just want to like give a lot of space to survivors in the room, and it's been a really difficult time for survivors in particular to have to hear and listen to the abuse that folks face, but also hear and listen to the gaslighting, yep. the privilege, the clear disdain for women coming from Kavana. Uh, and then, you know, I think I want to thank all of the folks who've been in the streets the last several weeks who put their bodies on the line, mm -hmm. their families. I mean, there have been so many people in the streets, largely women, but people in the streets fighting for all of us. So I wanna just give a deep bow of gratitude. With that, after the confirmation, I tweeted out, you know, this is like disturbing and it's shocking and it's a deep reminder how we need to organize, strategize, tear down and build up. And now more than ever, we need to be a part of something to change yeah. the course of history. We have two more years left to ensure that he is not back in office. And we pretty much have decades to undo what he has already yeah. brought upon us. 
And to recognize how much skin all of us have in the game. Absolutely. Right? It's queer people, it's people of color, it's trans, it's everyone. Absolutely. Okay, with that said, I'd like to now turn it over to audience Q&A. So if you have a question for Patrice, um, if you can just walk to the mic in the middle of the room. Me again, thanks mm -hmm. for the shout out for Bayard. <laughs> um, so one of my observations is in the 40 years, to go back to the Kavanaugh uh, confirmation today, this has been a plan of the GOP since Brown v. Board. Absolutely. Right? So most of the people in this room were not alive when this battle started. Mm -hmm. And we've now seen the end of the period where the Supreme Court was the kind of equalizer when it comes to civil rights. I maintain that now it has shifted from the judicial to the legislative. Mm -hmm. mm. Would you care to comment on how important it is to get more representative people elected? And I don't mean Democratic toadies. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for saying that. I think many of us, I'll just start by saying, I don't think many of us believe that 45 could actually be the president. Um, and what we have realized in the last couple of years is that the right and white supremacists and white nationalists have been fighting this fight for a very long time. And that when we see the rise of black people on a black radical politic, we will always see the rise of white nationalism mm -hmm. as a backlash. Mm -hmm. And that uh, part of the work that we must do is continue to organize, continue to mobilize, um, and have a really clear inside out strategy which is what the right has. They have a very clear inside out, inside out strategy. It's why 45 was really never condemned what happened in Charlottesville. Yeah. Because he knew that that was his base and that he needed to appease his base. And we, I think our work is to be more courageous in who we support and how we support them and break open what is you know, truly a democratic party that has not been doing the work for all of us. And we have to challenge it in this moment. And we have to be bold and courageous in how we challenge it. And we have to be uplifting folks in office who are not the traditional leaders. We have to be courageous in that approach. I'm so excited for Stacey Abrams. Yeah. I'm so excited for Andrew Gillum. I think we have this incredible opportunity in this moment for folks who are queer, women, black, Latinx, indigenous, Muslim, and also radical. <laughs> Because you could be all those things and conservative in this yeah, moment. Yes, yes. So we are looking for those folks to have, a, have radical politics and, and lead in a way that we um, deserve. Hi, thank you so much for, um, for sharing. Um, I want to ask you a hard question, <laughs> but I think I'm really curious to hear your take on this. And that is, I think, a lot about a polarization in this moment, or one that's, I guess, not recognized as a polarization, but is one between um, sort of mainstream liberals who are, you know, very angry about about the current president, but still have a liberal worldview, and people who are, you know, more decidedly radicals, as you call them, or on the left. And um, you know, you reference this sort of split in view in different times and. And your comments and whether it takes the form of like a liberal view that we just need to reform the police or train them better. So I guess my question is if you have like, if you could speak a little bit about how you think 
the best approach is to work on that <laughs> on that divide. You know, part of the reason why I'm so interested to ask you is because I think like um, school to prison pipeline activism is like an example of something that Black Lives Matter was really involved in that I think does a good job of sort of pulling the rug from under the the liberal view on that because of the way it draws links between different sites of um, criminalization. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious if you have more to say. Yes, I think um, part of what we do, it's very easy for sort of the traditional liberal establishment to co-opt what is left or progressive, especially if it gives them some sort of clout or gain. And it gets tricky when we live in places like LA, which is like the liberal haven, right? And becomes a very complicated dance around how we deal with, you know, when we have a very liberal mayor like Eric Garcetti, but that really and truly hates Black Lives Matter, right? Or we had a liberal chief of police who really and truly hated Black Lives Matter. Um, what you do in those moments is you don't back down and you identify what's actually happening and you expose. And I think that's been, that was what was really powerful about the launching of Black Lives Matter is that black people already knew what was happening to us and, and commun our communities with police. It was the rest of America that didn't. And what we did is we exposed the crisis of this system. We exposed that crisis. And white folks, really well-meaning white folks, were like, I didn't know. I didn't know that that's how law enforcement was treating black people because they don't treat me like that. And so I think number one is exposing and that becomes really important. And, and then number two is identifying, okay, well, what is, how far can we go? And folks are always gonna say, well, you can't go that far because you can never get that. But then things like abolish ICE happens and it becomes a national call, mm. right? Abolish ICE. We couldn't even have said that two or three years ago, but that literally comes out of Black Lives Matter saying abolish the police and being unapologetic about how we say that and having conversations, right? Or even this call, don't call the police on black people, right? That has become a radical call. And so I think us identifying what is the radical call and making it popular and, and creating environments where we can have this popular conversation about this radical idea that's actually not that radical. If we know that when you call the police, a black person ends up dying, then don't call the police. Let's figure something else out, right? And so I think that becomes sort of, it needs to be no nonsense and how we approach it. And we have to be willing to have the conversation over and over and over again. Hi, I don't think my question is very, very well formulated in my head, but I'll try to articulate it. So many of our progressive movements identify our goal and our progress on the basis of the laws that we achieve. Even as we fight, whether it's Kavanaugh, whether it's on abortion, we base our progress on the achievement of law, mm -hmm. legal rights. Mm -hmm. And yet, those systems, as we well know, are based on supremacy, racism, they're fundamentally flawed systems. So you'll have the left, and much what I call the left, or you'll have many people, both on the right and the left, who are saying, we can't even have these systems, just fuck the system, yeah. right, that sort of fuck system. 
And yet, when push comes to shove, most of their fighting is trying to get that into law the system, yeah. and into the system. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in your reflection on this as it comes to Black Lives Matter, but also with regard to women's rights now. Yes. I, I suspect you're gonna talk about community building and things like that, but mm -hmm. I'd like to talk about this because it's such a complicated thing and we're seeing it everywhere, but, but I don't see it talked about very much. It's a great question. Well, I think um, it really gets to the heart of, of Black Lives Matter because if many people remember, the big criticism people had of us was, well, what's your plan? What's your policy? What are you all working on? What are you fighting for? And what we said was, that's too early. If we decide to negotiate now, we will be co-opted. And so we spent the first three years sh shutting shit down. And we spent the first three years disrupting, disrupting business as usual. And I think the question has become for many of us, while I do think policy shift is absolutely necessary, I don't think it's the fix-it ticket. It can't be, based off of the country that we live in. Uh, but I do think uh, what we are trying to create and trying to envision is what could a new world look like? Uh, what could a new America look like? Uh, and what will it take to get us there? And that, to me, is the more interesting conversation, right? So it's the conversation that is about abolition. Uh, if it's the ab abolishing of the police or, or prisons, right? Many people then ask, well, what are we gonna do? Well, let's spend some time to think about it, right? Let's spend some time to think about the world we wanna create, because we're so busy trying to reform the world that exists that we don't actually ever give ourselves the opportunity to actually envision the world that we wanna live in. And I think that's, black, that's what Black Lives Matter offers, a visioning of a new world, not just of a, a reforming or fixing of a quote broken system that actually isn't broken, it's exactly the way it was built. Okay, so for my generation, Archie Bunker changed the world in a lot of ways. Um, we're now seeing a lot of black betrayals on TV, and I use the word betrayals to see if that's an accurate description. Do you feel it's helpful, or is it a betrayal? Um, you said betrayal or portrayal? Are we betraying an image? Uh-huh. Um, I, I think, you know, what's interesting about this moment around black people in Hollywood in particular is there's clearly been a black renaissance in, in Hollywood. And that is not separate and divorced from Black Lives Matter permeating every part of culture. I think what we are seeing is a move towards identifying authentic black voices that are actually being led by black writers and black directors and black actors. Uh, and it's allowing for shows like Insecure, uh, allowing for shows like Queen Sugar, allowing for all of what Shonda has done and challenging and changing how we see and view black people and women. Um, and I think it's incredibly important. It's, um, I remember when there was like a good eight to 10 years when reality TV ruled everything on TV and it was very bizarre. And I think having real stories connecting to real life, so many um, moments that I've watched TV where I'm like, oh, there's a Black Lives Matter character or a Black Lives Matter scene. And may, they may not get it right every time. There is a response to this moment that feels incredibly authentic. And I'm 
I'm, I'm grateful for it, to be honest with you. Hi, thank you so much for being here tonight. And I'm really interested in how Black Lives Matter organizes. Um, I know you've written and talked a little bit about the that sort of the structure and the way that community is built is a way, in a way, kind of reflects in how the work is done. And I think that that's a model in many ways that a lot of other movements could be learning from. And we need new models right now. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we are a decentralized network, which means that we don't have a single leader. I'm not the president of Black Lives Matter. <laughs> I am a founder of its uh, movement and organization. And uh, we have chapters across the globe who are then the founders of their chapters based off of the national organization. Um, and uh, we have opted to really have a group-centered leadership, um, which is a phrase and practice cr uh, created by Ella Baker, um, who was the architect of the civil rights movement. Uh, and we really have challenged the idea of like a charismatic leader. And while many of us have become very visible in this moment, none of us are gonna say that we are the leader of Black Lives Matter. That's just not true. There are hundreds and hundreds of leaders of Black Lives Matter. And we think that's actually the way that we're going to win. That also, I, it occurs to me that <laughs> that's also what keeps the movement like quite vital and protected. There's no one person that can be a target Absolutely. For like, you know, as we saw in like movements from the 60s and 70s, right? That was a real problem is Absolutely. that like, you know, you kill Martin Luther King and then like, you know, you hurt the movement in that way. Absolutely. All right, we have time for one more question. So I'd like to change direction a little bit if I may. Mm -hmm. um, I recently left this organization that's very popular in West Hollywood called Stonewall Democrats because it has a lot of intrinsic racism. Mm -hmm. And we don't discuss, in my view, enough about the whitewashing of gay liberation. Absolutely. It drives me up a wall. Absolutely. But to have it be entrenched in a recognized entity that has so much pull mm -hmm. with what drives not only the priorities within our community, but now we're back to the laws again mm -hmm. and the priorities of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. So if you wouldn't mind addressing how we can best awaken the various parts of our community mm -hmm. to work together without continuing to um, subsidize and celebrate what is basically an extension of white male privilege. Absolutely, great, great, great comment and question. I mean, I think this is like, um, my partner just tweeted this really amazing tweet that was like basically challenging white women and around this Kavanaugh vote, right? And how many white women came out in support of Kavanaugh and uh, really challenged white women and saying, you know, you are literally choosing white supremacy over being a woman. And that is the conversation about whiteness really and whatever marginalized community, um, the conversation around whiteness for white people in particular is to challenge your whiteness. Mm. Um, and um, part of what I always ask white people to do is when you're in a room and there are you know, 
you know, whether you're queer or a woman, and you look around and there are no people of color, you have to ask yourself a question. What kind of work are you doing? What kind of work are you leading if there is nobody else in the room and why? You know, because what, I he- what I've heard over the years from white folks in particular is, well, black people just don't, they're not interested in this stuff. And I'm like, that is the furthest thing from the truth, right? They're not interested in the way that you're trying to shape it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is, these are the courageous conversations that we need to be having in our organizations and our communities and the way that we have them, right? If your board is all white men, then we have to have a conversation about that. And then what are you, what, what's the practice? What are you gonna do to upend that? What are you gonna do to stop that? What, what are you gonna do to challenge it? Not just in dialogue, but in actual practice. All right, we're gonna have one more bonus question. Mm-hmm. One more from one our more. guest here. I wanna know how you got so brave. Oh, I get it from my mama. <laughs> I get it from my mother. She's like one of the most gorgeous human beings alive. And she's so shy about it. I'm always like, you're so pretty, mom. She's like, stop. (laughs) She's also one of the things that I remember from the memoir is that you talk about how your mom worked all the time and made things happen. And like that was something that was particularly encouraging and like inspiring to you. Yeah, I mean, it was was multiple things. It was hard because she wasn't around a lot. Um, But it was also my mother is, um, she was a teenage mom and she had four of us by the time she was 27 years old. And she literally created a world for us that was, like when I I have a child now, and when I had my child, I would literally, I mean, it was the hormones, but it was also like, (laughs) I was like, I would like cry like after every day, like, how did you do this? And my mom was a single mom and I'd be like, thank you. I took advantage of you. I'm so sorry. Like, (laughs) she'd be like, it's okay. Um, But the... The, the, as, a, as a black woman um, you know, and, and mother with four small children by herself, I mean, she's literally my hero. And she is now in my life every single day helping me raise my child. And it's, it's one of the most healing experiences I've ever had. All right, well, we're gonna end there. Thank you so much to Patrice Cullors for speaking with us. Thanks. You've been listening to Eric Newman's conversation with Patrice Cullors, author of When They Call You a Terrorist, a Black Lives Matter memoir. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 